that's the other important part was it's not every company's for everybody, for sure. Not every company's for everybody forever. And that's absolutely true. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate podcast. The quote for today is from Dan Pfeiffer, and it is, if the person at the top of any organization does not reflect the values you want in the culture of that organization, it won't work. Our first guest today is someone I've wanted to talk to for years and who served as a virtual mentor for me through her, some of her groundbreaking ideas. Patty McCord is one of the world's leading experts on company culture. She was the chief talent officer at Netflix, where she developed a company culture that inspired many companies to adopt similar principles, including our company, Acceleration Partners. She also authored the now famous Netflix Culture Deck, which has been seen by millions and which Sheryl Sandberg called the most important document to ever come out of Silicon Valley, which is saying a lot. Patty is also a sought-after speaker and the author of Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. Patty, welcome. I'm really excited to be speaking with you today. Me too. Thanks for having me. I also want to welcome Acceleration Partners' own head of culture, Emily Tedo, who's going to join our discussion in the second half of the podcast as we go into some of the how of culture. So welcome, Emily. Thank you so much. All right, Patty, you're known for yeah. this innovative culture work that you did at Netflix, but I'm curious, what happened before Netflix? And did that contribute to your philosophies at Netflix? Or was it just sort of the, the perfect mix of, of your beliefs and, and Reed's beliefs and what the company wanted to do? Uh, there's two important pre-Netflix parts that matter. One of them is my career in HR started, I started as a recruiter. And when you're a recruiter, then you don't really worry about a lot of things that a lot of HR people worry about. Like you don't worry about retention. You actually like when somebody leaves because that gives you a new job to hire for it, right? right? And you also find that there's always somebody else out there and um, there's always somebody better. So that's kind of how you think about work. The second thing is I was very, very traditional and Reed and I worked together at another startup before Netflix where we grew through merger and acquisition. Position. And what we did was we would take their employee handbook and our employee handbook and we would smash them together and just have more policies every time we did an acquisition. And by the time that company was over, and by the time that company was over, I'm, you know, I've got 20 something years under my belt, probably. And I just was tired of it. I was just tired of doing things the way I just wasn't sure anything worked anymore, to be honest with you. And I worked a lot with engineers. And at that point, I had stopped speaking HR speak, because I had to speak plainly to engineers or they wouldn't listen to me. And was there sort of a formative experience at Netflix where where you said, hey, we got to do this well, differently or, yeah. Well, we did. So Reed talked, the story in my book of how Reed talked me into coming to Netflix. So he called me up in the middle of the night and I said, 
no, I don't want to do another startup with you. I'm consulting, yeah. <laughs> you know, my kids know my name. It's li life is good. And I think DVDs in the mail is the dumbest idea anybody's ever had. <laughs> and I already, I know what you're asking me to do. <laughs> Go call somebody that doesn't know what you're talking about. And he said, here's the opportunity. You know, I said, talk me into it. Tell me why I should do this. And he said, let's make the company we always dreamed of. What if we're successful? And let's make a place where if we're successful, we still want to work there. And so I said, really? Well, how would you know if we did that? And he said, I want to walk in the door every day and solve these problems with these people. And he said, how about you? And I said, wouldn't it be cool if we were a great place to be from? You know, like if uh, having Netflix yeah. on your resume was like a cool thing. And I didn't know at the time how profound my answer was. Because when I realized that if you create a company that's a great place to be from, and that's your deep guiding principle, then everything falls away. Now you can talk about really being on great teams. Now you can talk about, you know, the work in increments and not in a forever relationship. So that's part A. The part B is the way we decided to do it. So I said, yes, right. And what we decided to do was to write things down. So there's a couple of things in introduction that are a little misleading that everybody introduces me as. One of them is that I'm the author of the Netflix Culture Deck. I'm not. Co-author, right? Um, well, you know, I said to read one time, I'm like, how many hours do you think you and I have put into this document? And he goes, you and me? I mean, think about every manager, every director, every VP, every employee who's ever commented on us. I mean, it's hundreds of thousands of hours. So the Netflix culture deck took 10 years to write. I don't think many years. people know that. Yeah. Nobody knows it. It took 10 years to write. There are certain chapters, when you go back and reread it, every chapter is built on the chapter before. So we couldn't have freedom and responsibility unless we hired adults. <laughs> and when we had freedom and responsibility, when and we said people need to use good judgment, then we had to have context, not control, right? So then people had to really understand what they were doing. So they had the freedom to make the right judgment calls and do the right thing, right? So what we wrote it as was an internal onboarding document. What we used the Netflix culture deck for was uh, when 10 people got hired, Reed and I would meet in a room with them and we would go through that PowerPoint deck and say, here's how you can, what you can expect from working. We didn't write it to be a guideline. We didn't write it to tell everybody else what to do. We wrote it to say, here's what you can expect when you work here. And the leaker of the Netflix culture deck was Reed. <laughs> I was going to ask that, yeah. Yeah, well, no, I we drive to work one day. We used to, we, true story, we used to carpool. And he says, you know what? I met this last night at this dinner who has this really cool new company. It's called SlideShare. I'm like, yeah, what'd they do? He goes, you know, <laughs> they put PowerPoint slides online. I'm like, oh, that is a great idea. I wonder what people are going to put out there. He goes, oh, I, I published the deck this morning. <laughs> like you did well, what <laughs> and he goes well what's wrong with that i'm like oh god read it's the ugliest document known to humankind i mean it's just horrible i don't even think the fonts are the same chapter to chapter he goes you never told me it was ugly i'm like yeah i don't want to hurt your feelings i said and then you're gonna scare away all our candidates and he said only the ones we don't want that sounds like a very typical interaction between a founder and a head of <laughs> culture or HR. <laughs> Isn't it? Right? I was like, oh, God. Well, you know, it's the internet, so we can't take it back. But it changed our interviews like the next day. 
you know, now yeah. we were interviewing people about how do you like to work? Or they would say, what's with this no vacation? Like, does that mean we don't get vacation? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask you because you're doing this in the onboarding, right? And what if someone's in the onboarding and they're like, I don't want to sign up for this. So it, it made... It, I was I, really, you know, <laughs> honestly, I could look around the room and I would, like when we were to the part where, you know, adequate performance gets this generous severance package and I would see people, I'm like, oh shit, she's not going to last. <laughs> <laughs> so it actually turned out to be a great thing. And the other thing was, you know, if I would, you would come in for an interview and I'd say, so what part of the network was interesting to you? And you'd say, oh, you, I didn't get time to read it. I would just say, thanks for coming. Yeah. Bye. Right. So it was a very, very useful tool. But, you know, we changed portions of that. That's, you know, it was PowerPoint. So if we came up with a better way to say it or, we wanted to redo something, we could do it. It was just PowerPoint. So it was a living, breathing document. It wasn't a treatise. People could send me an email and go, you know, I think I've, there's a better way to save slide 72. I'm like, God, you're right. That's better. I'll change it. And I would. But what version did the world see? Did they just see 1.0 or would you subsequently release the, the updates? I think we released the updates for a while. If you look on the Netflix website now, Reed has rewritten it completely in kind of a booklet form. And they've added, they added a big piece about um, diversity and diversity of opinion and globalization because the company is now, you know, all over the world. And he condensed and edited a lot. And they did it in the same way we did it when I was there, which was at a company offsite. So, so our rhythm was that at our leadership offsites or at leadership meetings, from the very beginning, we would take time to say, how is it we want to work together? What kind of company do we want to be? And we would write it down. And that's the culture part that I had never done in any other company I'd ever worked with. And at that point, we had come through another cycle in the Silicon Valley where engineers were God and we had to make them happy all the time. And I was just sick and tired of it. <laughs> you know, I the first dot-com boom, I'm like, I really, seriously, I cannot work with these children anymore. Let's <laughs> hire anybody who's not an adult. Do you think, though, that there's something in this that I've come to realize, which is that it was just so authentic about who you were and who you weren't? What What is it about CEOs or company leaders where they're just afraid to say who they are and what they value? Like they, they, they steal all this Dilbert stuff and they put it on the wall from other companies and it's not... It's not actually what they think or how they behave, but I, there's some pressure to do that versus you guys said, you know, the famous line, and I'm going to screw it up, you'll correct it, you know, what was the average performance gets a generous severance and <laughs> it just was honest. And, and I just think that's so rare, but it could be much easier for the employees and the company if everyone just said what they valued and actually behaved that way. You know, I've been gone seven years and I travel all over the world and I meet huge companies and tiny little startups. And so in the tiny little startup, part of the reason I think it's so hard is that people just don't know any better. And so in the tiny, tiny little startup, you really don't pay much of attention to culture because you're so busy working, <laughs> right? And that yeah. whole camaraderie and esprit de corps and all that stuff happens because you're solving problems of difficulty. And mostly what you're doing in a very early stage startup is making mistakes. 
And then when you get a little bigger and you start to get more organized and you get departments and then it starts to smell like a grown-up company, then people reach for the traditional handbook and start doing all those things. And the in the early stage companies that I work with, the gap for the CEOs when I talk to them almost always is they think it's important to write down these glowing aspirational values, but they totally forget that they have to live it. <laughs> and sometimes the CEO can do it. And then, you know, I'm like, okay, you know, you seem to be a really great guy and you seem to be at least straightforward and honest and give people good feedback. But, you know, your head of sales is a slime ball. <laughs> so you, you can't be the only one. You know, the whole leadership team has to be able to embody it. And, you know, if you want to have an efficient company, then show up on time. Do you show up on time? I mean, it's the simple things like that. And then the other end of the spectrum is the huge, you know, 150,000 person global corporation. And they don't know who they are anymore. They talk about a big, you know, their corporate culture, and it's different in every country, and it's different in every department, it's, and they're not willing to. So they keep, have told themselves the lie of who they are for so long. Yeah, and you said the key word there, aspirational. People can't separate between who they are and aspirational. So here's, here's the full quote for everyone to listen to and, and, you know, see how many companies you know are, are this honest. So sustained B-level performance, despite A for effort, generates a generous severance package with respect. Sustained A-level performance, despite minimal effort, is rewarded with more responsibility and great pay. Pretty clear about what you valued. Yeah, but you know, um, looking back on it, here's the other thing that I've come to realize. Uh, and it's back to me telling you that I started out as a recruiter. And we can talk about this later when we have your HR person on the call. But I tell people, you know how we hire somebody to do something sometimes, and then they do it, and then they're done? And then we find something else for them to do that wasn't what we hired them to do that they're not very good at doing, and they don't really want to do? but we're keeping them, you know, we're retaining them. And then we wonder why everybody's unhappy, right? So the important part of that particular part of the culture deck is that it may be that your now B-level performance is because you're finished with your A-performing job. So my right. experience is really that, so number one, sometimes you just hire the wrong person. Yeah. You know, you just don't know what the job is and you're not very good at it and you hire the wrong person, especially when you're inventing stuff, especially in an innovation company. You're like, well, you're breathing. and you, you seem to like the product and you have some skills, so let's give it a go, right? And what we don't do with those people very well is because you know, you know in the first six months with that bet, if you hire the wrong person, like, oh shit, we did a bad thing here. And you can tell them, right? You can tell them, look, I'm hiring you because I think you can, but I don't really know. And then you hire somebody to do something, spend years on it, and then they're done and there's not that other opportunity anywhere in the company. And at Netflix, that was particularly astute because we only had one product. You know, at Google, if you get done or you get bored, you can go to one of the other Google Alphabet companies, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, right. You know, it's a whole suite of products and a suite of problems. It's a very different organization. And then the third part is... You know, sometimes life changes for you outside of work. Your circumstances change. And the way you work and what you want to do takes on a different, you know, meaning. And so sometimes, like I remember hiring somebody, uh, interviewing somebody from Apple. 
And he said, yeah, you know, I just got married and I have a new baby. I'm like, wow, congratulations. He said, yeah, so like if I don't have restrictions on my time off, I'm worried that you won't be a good parent. (laughs) (laughs) Like, okay, I get it. You might need more structure and Apple's a terrific company. You should probably stay until you feel better about that. Right. So it's not, that's the other important part was it's not every company's for everybody and it, not every com- for sure, not every company's for everybody forever. And that's absolutely true. Yeah. You know, there's a sports analogy that I use a lot in that, you know, people on sports teams are on contracts. And so there's just this mm-hmm. natural process every couple of years to have a reevaluation mm-hmm. of your role and the team's plan and their salary and sometimes it goes up oh, and sometimes man. it goes down. You know, I get to be on stage with them, right? I get to meet these <laughs> professional sports coaches now and I mean forget all these management books. So I I'm in Texas and I'm at diversity and inclusion conference DNI. I hate when we have to make up fancy little management terms. You know, I just talked to this diversity. I'm like DNI, you guys it sounds like linens and things. <laughs> <laughs> And we just call it diversity. I don't know. Okay, so I'm at this conference, and the coach of the San Antonio Spurs is on stage. And this very sensitive people in the audience, this person raises her hand, and she says, look, you know, I just can't imagine what it's like to be you. You spend all your time scouting for all this incredible talent, and these young men join the team, and they play their hearts out, and, you know, they they fight for every win and every point. Doesn't that just break your heart? And he looks at her total straight face. He goes, it's professional basketball. Yeah. (laughs) No, it doesn't break anybody's heart, right? They got to play for the Spurs. And I'm in the audience thinking, why can't we just say that to people? Right. Thanks. Boy, that sure was fun. You're done. (laughs) I mean, right. You use the vernacular. We're we're a team, not a family. Is Is that where you got that from? Or did you hear that afterwards? Oh, that's exactly where I got it from. For me personally, it was just this endless series of like, is what's going to come out of my mouth next? True. Whether people want to hear the truth is a different discussion, I guess, right? Yeah. My experience is that humans can hear anything if it's true. They may not like it, but it's much, much better to have an honest conversation with somebody about what's going on than to spin stuff up so that people are confused. People hate the spin. And, you know, the other thing I want to say is so far we've been talking a lot about saying goodbye and negative experiences. And this is the stuff that people always want to talk to me about. (laughs) But there's a part that I really want to say in podcasts now, which is the reason why this kind of honesty works is that when you have a great team of amazing people accomplishing stuff, it's so joyful. (laughs) It's so fun, right? If you've been on a great team, you know it. And when you start talking about it, you light up, right? And so that's why I wrote my book. I mean, I wrote my book so that I could explain how the Netflix culture actually, how we actually did it. And I wanted to counteract what I was seeing after I left Netflix, which was this whole, you know, shift in corporate culture means having happy employees because happy employees do better work. And so if craft beer makes them happy, then by God, you got to have craft beer. And my experience told me, look, most of the people I know, when you ask them, tell me about a time at work where you're really proud or you accomplished something or you went home and said to your pet, God, it was a great day at work. 
always the story is something hard. Always, right? That's when you're like, yeah, we did it, right? We did it. So you can't make people happy with beer. I mean, you can. (laughs) But if you want them to be truly happy at work, it's about accomplishing stuff that you can only do at work. That's the reason why you go, to work with other people and get stuff done. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Yeah, there are a couple of thinkers, authors who are formative in, in how we built our culture and, and we'll get into some of your material that was really helpful for me. The other was Dan Pink in his book Drive, where he really talked about Isn't you know, great. Yeah, intrinsic motivation and and doing great yep. stuff. And yeah, this whole notion in Silicon Valley that culture is beer pong and foosball tables and yoga and free lunch and free coffee. Those are perks. That's not culture. That's right. And those things are nice. And who doesn't love nice things? I mean, yeah. you know, I walk into companies, I'm like, wow, I could live here. <laughs> you know, I get inspiration for furniture and stuff. I mean, I, who doesn't love nice things? And people enjoy that and people enjoy beautiful environments and all that stuff. But not what culture is. You know, I'm very anthropological about culture. It's the stories you tell. It's what you reward. It's what you punish. You know, it's how you behave. It's how you consistently behave across the company in a couple of, you know, a handful of ways that matter a lot. And really, that's it, right? It's the the legends of your company that create culture and not the beer. Because you got to keep buying new beer because new beer, you know, changes all the time. 
Yeah, and that's an arm. That's an arms race. I mean, I've been to some of these companies. It's an arms race. You don't want to try to win because it. it oh man, I mean, yeah. you and me both. You know, <laughs> I've sat down and said, "Tell me what it is you do." <laughs> you know, the chief happiness officer. I'm like, are you like in charge of ordering hoodies or like what? <laughs> like when you come in and you sit at your table, what do you do? <laughs> I make people happy so they won't leave. I'm like, well, okay. Well, I, I know you want to talk about leaving, but you know, I think there is something to this and this is just the reality of people coming and going, but there's a struggle to have these conversations. So we're trying to build this world-class culture. And a few years ago, we had some people give two weeks notice and I was sitting there and I was like, this just feels incongruous to what we're trying to build. And, you know, how do other people handle this? How do we not do this? And I started looking around and Googling and, and finding some articles. And in that mm-hmm. process, I came across a quote that you said, which really changed my entire perspective and, and that our team. And, and it was, I could have told the employee, here's what I'm going to need six months from now. And here's the talent and skills I need. Then you tell her, it's not you. I don't want to fail. I don't want to publicly humiliate you. And those mm-hmm. difficult conversations are handled with respect and often the employee get paid time to find a new job. When or how did you come up with that approach to leaving? And again, the go be from Netflix and, and you know, what kind of impact did that have? I mean, it was new, right? I think it's hard for people to get used to something like that. But when you start having it, those conversations, what were the reactions? Really, the catalyst was that layoff that I just told you about. And in that layoff, I said goodbye to anybody who isn't working directly on DVD by mail. I said goodbye to all of middle management because I couldn't have people whose job it was to approve or tell somebody else what to do because just they weren't doing anything. <laughs> they were just managing other people's work. And I say goodbye to anybody who wasn't technically talented or wasn't really you know, into the mission. And about a year after that, uh, we went public and I looked around the company and I looked at my finance organization. I realized I had 25 people in that organization and two of them had worked at a public company. Right, we're going to IPO, right? And like, oh, this is the wrong talent. This is the wrong team. And these are wonderful people, and I love them to death. But this is the wrong team. And I'm like, we can't be. So, do I hire another twenty people who have the skills that we need and keep them? And then I realized, you know, what I'm going to end up doing. Here's what in a traditional company I would do. I would say. Okay, um, Miss Accounts Payable, Mr. Accounts Payable Clerk, you can't actually do the receivables senior level job that I need. So I'm going to take your job and I'm going to divide it in half. And so you can do what you're good at and I'll hire somebody else to do the other half of your job. Now, if I do this across the organization, then I'm going to have to hire a supervisor that tells them what to do because they don't know what to do right? And then that supervisor's job isn't just to tell them what to do. So that supervisor is going to need a manager or director to tell them directionally where to go. And I, all of a sudden, I could imagine the org chart, (laughs) right? (laughs) That giant triangle that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger at the bottom. And I realize, and then I'm building a whole organization where most of the people have to be told what to do. Right. And what I could do instead was just say, I love you, kiss you on the cheek and go, love you, love you, love you, love you. And I know that you want to be a CFO someday, but you're an accounts payable clerk. So that's going to take a while. <laughs> and we're not kind of have time. And so the, the thing that you mentioned that is my methodology about thinking about where people are going to go and what they're going to do is the thing to do very well, put a time on it. 
that's why I use six months. In six months, what's it going to look like? You can kind of see your way six months out. You cannot see your way 10 years out. And what we tend to do with people is we say, you know, someday you could do this, <laughs> right? You had the conversation yeah. with the employee. <laughs> yeah, someday you could do that. And in my mind, I'm thinking five years. And your mind is like, you mean next month? <laughs> we don't ever... <laughs> you know, we don't ever do that. And when you have those conversations, then people, then you can say, so here's the deal in six months, you know, we're going to need a whole different team. And it's not that you're not good at what you do. It's actually, we're not going to need anybody to do what you do anymore. So let's talk about how we're going to work that out. And then instead of the ridiculous, horrible, meaningless, evil performance improvement plan, <laughs> How do, you, how do you really feel about those? <laughs> <laughs> Which, let's take this situation. You know, you built something, you're done with it. You're a great guy. I don't really need you to build it anymore. I need you to maintain it. You don't want to maintain it. So I'm put you on a performance improvement plan. Your issue is not performance. It's anything to do with performing. You're performing, you're an A player. You're just in the wrong job, right? So what I did was I said, instead of doing that, instead of putting you on a 90-day performance improvement plan, why don't I tell you six months before so that we can figure out what we're going to do or as soon as I know that you're not going to work out. And then I'm just going to, instead of putting you on a 90-day plan, I'll just pay you three months of pay. Right. And that's how I came up with the amount for my severance. <laughs> I was like, well, let's see. Why don't we just not do that? Why don't we just not have that in writing conversation weekly where we, where I basically humiliate you and try and prove that you're incompetent on paper because I'm worried that you're going to sue me. You know, and this is the conversation I have with people all the time. You know who sues me? People who hate you. You know why they hate you? <laughs> You put them on a performance improvement plan, tortured them for 90 days. I have said this a lot and I've gotten arguments about people that that HR and legal people have sort of trained people to do a performance improvement plan for CYA. How do we change the way that both employees and companies talk about transitions that can make this idea of employment is not for life more understood? First of, well, first of all, we need to be honest that it hasn't been true for yeah. decades, right? I mean, I do 1,500 CEOs in the room and I say, raise your hand if you're in the job that you had when you graduated from college. And like zero hands go up. I'm like, raise your hand if you measure retention. 1,500 hands go up. I'm like, that doesn't seem weird to you. <laughs> like, <laughs> Let's talk about the basic premise of work that is a total lie right? So there's not only that, but there's also the fact we're living longer, we're going to work longer. There's so many different ways to work now. So the idea of I'm going to join a firm and it's going to take care of my career for the next 30 years is like not only not going to happen, period, end of story, but it's also not how you have to work, right? I am loving my life. I have tons of control over what I want to do. If I had known <laughs> that I could have this life, I might have done it a long time ago. <laughs> so we first got to just all of us, you know, say to ourselves, honestly, okay, this is not only kind of not the way things are working. It's a lie. Yeah. Right. So careers are journeys. And the mo more we can both as employees, as employers talk about that, then don't stay and work at a place that you're miserable at. That's your job. And I can't tell you how many times I sat down and talked to an unhappy person and said, I think you should work somewhere else, don't you? 
<laughs> you don't like your new boss. You don't like the work that you're doing. This is kind of silly. You know, you're a smart person. You're really capable. Sure, I'm going to miss you, but but this is dumb. And you don't get to stay and be make everybody else unhappy. I'm from Texas, my mama says. Honey, misery loves company. Herb Kelleher, there's a famous story. This woman used to write him every week and complain about their plastic tickets and complain about waiting in line and complain. And he said, he wrote her a note back. He said, it just seems like we're not the right airline for you. You, you should yeah. fly a different, a different airline. Yeah. 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 You know, at Netflix, we would hire people when we got big enough so that we could hire very senior people from other companies. It was really frustrating for me to have to like reprogram them. The person would come in and go, hey, I've been here for a couple of months. My team morale is kind of low. I need you guys to figure out some team building for us. I'm like, right, that's what we hired you to do. Go build a team. (laughs) The people that are working for you are unhappy because they're the wrong team. You need to hire a new team. He's like, I was thinking kind of a ropes course. I'm like, wait a minute. (laughs) No, no, no. You know, it's your job to build a great team. It's not mine. Then when you're that team member, it's also your job to be pretty self-reflective and say, am I still enjoying this? Am I still doing the work I love to do? Does it still matter? I mean, all, all good questions. You know, something you and I talked about before the call, and this is where we want to really kind of get some dialogue. I know you maybe even had some questions for Emily. In thinking about small and mid-sized companies, I know you get frustrated. People read your stuff and say, well, we can't do that. Only, only companies like Netflix can do that, or we're not, we're not Netflix, and they just use that as an excuse. You know, One of the things we were trying to come up with our transition program, which we ended up calling Mindful Transition, we said, well, we can't afford six months of severance. Now I actually understand that it was really kind of three and three mm-hmm. and three. But like, mm-hmm. w- what could we do? How could we help people? How could we do this period? Why is it a mistake when smaller companies just think that this is all about budget and resources, what can they do rather than just say, well, I, we don't, you know, we didn't have that deck. We don't, you know, we don't have the resources of Netflix, so we can't do these same things. Yeah. Well, uh, let me take it in a couple of parts in terms of being straightforward with people about what you're going to do in your firm. Anybody can do that. So start with the business first, right? Why do you make money? Why are you in business? Who are your clients? Who are your customers? Who do you serve? And how do you serve them well? So for example, Emily, I used to say to my HR team, yes, we are a service organization. It's not spelled S-E-R-V-A-N-T-S. The people that we serve don't work here, right? The people that we serve are your mom or your, you know, your mail carrier or the person at the grocery store watches Netflix. So we, our job is to make sure that we do everything we can within our area of expertise to make sure that those teams create terrific products that serve the customer. So the first thing to do is pay tons of attention to the business. And the most important training I would do for any company, no matter how small or how large, is teach everybody in the company how to read a P&L. Right. Here's how a business works. Here's what your part of it is. Here's how all that happens. Because when you know that, when you know the operations of the organization, that can lead you to really straightforward conversations. So that's one thing. Two is every time you do something that you feel like you have to do because everybody else does it or it's best practices, <laughs> all I ask you to do is say, why? right? Uh, We do an annual performance review. Why? What are we trying to accomplish there? Is it a feedback mechanism? Because if it's a feedback mechanism, once a year is really stupid, right? So this I learned from engineers. Like an engineer never says, oh, let's take this thing that's kind of funky and make it a little less funky and customers will love it. 
<laughs> no, they're like, let's make this amazing thing that nobody has ever seen. So that's, I just learned to be a product manager. I used to describe myself as the COO of the culture or a product manager for the people stuff. So is that product, okay, so, well, it's a terrible feedback mechanism. So is it a compensation mechanism, right? So that's the third point I wanted to get to, which is money, which is compensation. There's a whole bunch of different ways to count people. There's head count, which is often butt count, right? How many chairs do you need? How many computers do you need? How big a facility do you need? Then there's the number of open positions that you want to fill. And usually you do that bottoms up by saying, in six months, we're going to need this many people to do this kind of stuff. And then there's the salary right? What your salary pool is when you roll it up all up together, that's how much money you're going to pay for a comp. But you know, you can afford a lot of things by not having some things. So if you keep the person who's okay, but they don't really like it, but you don't want them to go because you don't want to have a lot of turnover and they're, and you like them as a person and they're fine, right? So it's all a finite pool of money. That's what I used to tell people. I'm like, you know, I'm not going to go to the money tree and get some more because you need some more. We're going to move it around from some other part of the organization. So what we tried to value in terms of compensation was predictability. Did we accurately estimate what we would be spending and then allow tons of flexibility? So you can hire the person at 300K by either A, saying goodbye to two 150s or not hiring four 150s. You know what I'm saying? You just have to apply the math. And the problem with traditional compensation is that it doesn't reflect what the real dynamics are of hiring people in the workforce, which is market-based. Right. Right. You're worth what somebody else will pay you. That's what you're worth. If you look at compensation, just like you would look at any other part of your budgeting process, you know, CapEx or depreciation or, you know, facilities costs, then you're going to move that money around as necessary. And you can do the same thing with compensation. So the part about you can't afford six months severance, well, that depends on what you're trying to accomplish with that severance, right? Right. You know, a lot of people pay severance for people to go away rather than to pay them to continue working, but agree to a timeline, as you said, about when that switch is going to be made. So there's a difference between paying someone to do some work and paying them to do nothing, right? In terms of what the company totally, gets out of that. Totally, totally, totally. <laughs> and you know, what usually happens is we do like bad breakup stuff. <laughs> like, yeah, I want them to leave at the end of the month, but actually I don't want to tell them. So while I'm busy recruiting for somebody, I want them to stay, but I want to tell them that I want them to go, but I want to have a four month transition. I'm like, okay, we're, we're transitioning this person for four months who's unreliable and it makes you crazy because they never do anything on time. What makes you think they're going to suddenly be reliable for the next four months? Like, really? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's about applying clean logic to situations that aren't often very logical because we're talking about people here. All right, everyone, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. When you started your business, I'm sure you didn't dream about all those admin tasks like drafting proposals and contracts and tracking down payments. Of course you didn't. And that's why you need HoneyBook. 
HoneyBook's an innovative online management tool that organizes your client communications, booking, contracts, and invoices all in one place. It makes it really easy to run your business better. Professional templates, e-signatures, and built-in automation keep everything on track and make you look good. They can even consolidate services you already use, such as QuickBooks, Google Suite, Excel, and MailChimp. And that's why it's the number one choice for client and business management for freelancers and business owners. And right now, HoneyBook is offering our listeners 50% off when you visit honeybook.com slash elevate. Payment is flexible, and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. So go to honeybook.com slash elevate for 50% off your first year. That's honeybook.com slash elevate. Emily, what's your... I know you must have a list at this point, but what is your... Emily, let's go, let's go. Let's, let's get I know, here. I know. Honestly, I'm just listening and fascinated by the conversation right now because so many things I I see them align with what we do here but again just on a smaller scale really yeah yeah so I see so many of the philosophies that are aligned and having conversations with our managers here about having just honest conversations with employees and the benefits of that and I would say this people worry about especially when you're small you kind of have this fear of policy and bureaucracy creep, right? So you're, you have healthy skepticism about it. But I think what's really important for you to remember is that discipline is beautiful and that organizations, even the word organization means you have parameters around the way you operate with each other. So it'll be more efficient, right? So let's take the thing you just mentioned, which is we really want to encourage people to make sure that they have honest conversations with people. You might want to have some discipline around that, right? You might want to say, huh, you know what, we're going to mandate, we're going to make a rule around here that everybody has a one-on-one with somebody that they work for every two weeks. You got to do it, right? And you, Robert, you're going to skip level and go, hey, tell me about your one-on-one with Emily. She's like, well, you know, she's been busy and I've been busy. I actually haven't had one in six months. That needs to be punishable, (laughs) right? Um, So let's say you have the discipline that says you're going to have a one-on-one every two weeks. Well, then make every third or fourth one-on-one be about performance. Formalize it. Right. And so you can do that by saying, sending an email, Hey, Emily, we're going to do our performance one on one next week. Here's the five topics that I think we should talk about. And oh, by the way, don't forget to prepare feedback for me too. Then I can say, you know, we've talked about this before. Why does this thing keep happening? And you can say, because you said you were going to help me out and you never get time. <laughs> and then I'm like, Oh, God, you're right. Okay. How are we going to fix that? And it's not this big end of the year trauma drama because we've talked about it the whole time. The other thing about, you know, my advice for you about making sure that managers do this stuff is that you know this and I know this. The way you get better at giving feedback is you practice. Just do it. (laughs) That's what makes managers good at doing it. So I found that structure helps on some of these things. Right. I did compensation review once a year because I wanted to do a point in time analysis of where we were. And then over time, I actually ended up doing a comp review of any department where I hired a lot of people because I wanted to see if my market data was still fresh. So I just wanted to get your opinion on something that we do here, talking a little bit about 
the balance between when a performance improvement plan or a formal performance warning is appropriate and when you really just need to have an honest conversation that something's not going to work out. The employee is just not the right fit for the position, just not the right person in the right seat at the right time. In my view, there's no difference. To me, answer number two is always the right answer, right? You're going to give them an informal, <laughs> have an infor- hey, just wanted to shoot the shit here. And I'm thinking that maybe we don't need you anymore. Hey, how's, how's the new dog? <laughs> no, 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 no. So sometimes when we're having conversations with people, there are situations when 100% it is not the right person at the right time. And we're having these conversations with them about, you know, how we can either move them into another seat, or if they're just not right for AP right now, we talk about our mindful transition option, and we try to make a good transition for them. And then there are other times when we have employees that really the skills, it's really performance. And sometimes it's, they can get better. They have the capability to get better. It's just a matter of, do they want to? Um, Yeah, it's and time. Yeah. Do they have the time? Do they want to? Do they get it? Like, do they, do they really want to, right? So we give them the opportunity to get better, but we say, you know, you're going to need 110% of your effort on this. Okay. So that's when, that's when the, the manager of the organization, whose job it is to build a great team, sits down with the person, looks them in the eye and says, as you know, it's my job to build a great team and you're not on it anymore. Now, I got to tell you, if you walked in the door today, knowing what we both know, I don't think I'd hire you. So that means it's over, right? So the first part of the conversation is, thank you. Thank you for the work that you've done. Thank you for everything. We wouldn't be here today without you because those things are true. And when you don't feel like saying thank you, it's because you should have had this conversation a long time ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> Back yeah. when you still like them. So I guess right? so I'm, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm trying to go like earlier, right? Exactly what you're saying. Like we should have this conversation earlier. So early, like we're having the conversation earlier, like not getting to that point where you're actually mm-hmm. giving the person like you do, ha- you have some time, like there is some time, there is a window. We, we want to see some improvement. You mm-hmm. can't possibly do this, but if mm-hmm. you don't want to do that, that is cool too. We are good with yep. that. We respect you as a person. And we also yep. want to give you this option to transition. So you can either put 110% into over the next 60 days going and getting I better, think, or you know, we can do 110% and we're going to help you go look for something else. And we can have conversations along the way. It's not an absolute, right? But mm-hmm, like really mm-hmm. just giving people options so that when they get to that point of, oh gosh, this is, this is bad. They don't feel like they're stuck in a hole that they actually have an that option. Makes, that makes a ton of sense to me. If it's true, that sounds terrific. That sounds like exactly what you should be doing is, you know, not the right person anymore. You know, that's the part is you, you and the hiring manager have to sit down with each other. And go, do you really mean if they give 110 to be successful? Are you sure? Because you have to decide manager. It's your team, right? So the, the problem for me with doing that, that particular conversation when you already know that the answer is it's not going to work out is it feels really disingenuous and it feels like you're just not taking the responsibility to go ah, this is going to work <laughs> so yeah. I, I mean if you truly believe it then that's a perfectly wonderful thing to do and then everybody gets a chance to try it out right and the other thing is if you say we're going to give it a couple of months to do this 110 percent, you can do it transition and three weeks from now we're like you know this 
no. <laughs> and the other thing I would say to you is you're going to want to learn from who does it well and who doesn't do it well. So here was my secret for passing along the Netflix culture. This is my HR secret, I'll tell you. When I would work through with a hiring manager, you know, finally saying goodbye to somebody that we knew, blah, 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 and we go through all of that. And the person gets better at it uh, over time. When I would get a new manager, they would come in and say, there's somebody on my team that I'm concerned about, and I'm not sure if they're going to work out. I would say, go talk to Kevin and have them learn from each other because I don't need to be the answer of all of these questions. And so what you want is you want your management team as you grow to collectively create the muscle around having good conversations with people and to see it, right? This is like the the top of the management team should be able to demonstrate this kind of behavior all the time. And so that's for you, Emily, it's about, you know, making sure that you coach them and making sure that they have the right scripts and the right dialogues and that when the hiring manager and the the manager comes in and says, oh, yeah, I had this conversation, everything went great, that you follow up with the employee and go, tell me about the conversation you just had. You didn't have it. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And Patty, new managers. I mean, this is, it's one thing for seasoned managers, but when you're, when you're growing quickly, this is not something that probably new managers are are used to. How how do you how do you accelerate that process and get them to trust their gut? Because I think new managers uh, want to give people a lot of chances. Yeah. So here's um, like I'll, I'll give you a couple of my secrets. I say, uh, so have you figured out how this conversation is going to go? Yep, I have. I have it written down right here. Um, I'm like, okay, well, there's 27 bullet points and. Um, that's too many. <laughs> you don't need to break up with this person by telling them every personal flaw they've had since childhood, right? We don't have to hate them to break up. So I would coach them and say, how about this? How about this? And I usually would say to people, the conversation that you have, you want to be able to have that person have that conversation with their grandmother, right? Wow, my boss called me in today and they don't need me anymore. Here's the reason why. And it has to make sense. So that's thing one. Thing two is, you know how we imagine those conversations in our head and we sound so good. (laughs) Like, you know, when you're laying in bed at two in the morning, you're like, oh man, I'm going to be so good at this. So here's my really, really true secret, very special hint. Write down what you're going to say. Call your cell phone, call your answering, you know, right, uh, record it and say what you're going to say to your phone. Just say it. And most of the time, just having the words come out of your mouth is like, oh, man, that sounds really stupid. (laughs) It's just, you know how it is when you do public speaking, for example, right? You think you're practicing in your head and you don't need to practice out loud until you practice. And that didn't go well. Okay, so record it. And then I say, cure it for a couple of hours. And then go back and listen to the conversation as if you're the person you're talking to. And that little hint really helps people because new managers are afraid of even starting the conversation. So part of it is to have other people around them say, here's how I would normally do it. Here's the words that I would typically use because people don't know what to say because they literally don't know what to say. It's not because they're new managers and they don't know any better. It's exactly because they're new managers and they don't know any better. So you have to teach them. And the other part is the best time to teach people about these kind of conversations is when one of those conversations is going to come up, 
right? I don't think effective communication classes about delivering difficult messages are effective any other time <laughs> than when you need to deliver a difficult message. So, I mean, I did a lot of role play stuff, but the recording yourself is probably the best tip I would give you because, you know, it just happens between you and yourself and you can listen to yourself and go, oh man, I could do better than that. I mean, I've done it myself. I've recorded myself five times until I got it right. And even then, <laughs> you know, and when, when you're expecting the person to burst into tears and then they look at you and go, oh, thank God I've been waiting for you to tell me this. That is true a lot of the time, right? I, I, you know, one thing we have not talked about is why don't people have the difficult conversations? Is it just that they're afraid to? <laughs> if they have better I think, outcomes? I, I think we just don't know how. If it's early in your career and you haven't had those kind of conversations, you need to practice it with somebody. Say the words out loud so that you can do that. And, and again, I'm very prescriptive about it. You know, if you're going to have a difficult conversation with somebody, you start with thank you. Thank you for the work you've done. Thank you for all your contribution. We're going to have a somewhat difficult conversation here because I'm not sure how things are going to turn out. And then you need to deliver your message pretty succinctly. And the other thing for you, Emily, is you'll learn a ton from having a manager have a conversation and then following up with the employee. So... Then you can go back and go, well, um, I know what you told me you said. Let me tell you what she heard. I've had because as soon as somebody said, of course you have, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. And because, because the person meanders and meanders and meanders and you're like, you know, are you going to fire me or not? I mean, what, what, I don't, what? I sat him down and I told him at our last one on one, if this happens again, he's out of here. I'm like, great. Why don't you wait here and let me go ask him how he's doing? Well, I'm like, when, now when was that one on one that you had that conversation with him? Well, it was in, you know, at the end of the year, I'm like, it's May. <laughs> right. So, so when I go ask him how he's doing, they're going to say, you, you know, this, right. And then you go ask the person how they're doing. They're like, I don't know. You know, I had this conversation with my boss, God, I don't know, six months ago. And he was all upset about something. He was yelling and screaming. And I, you know, I felt like crying. And so, um, so what'd you do after that? Oh, I avoided him because oh, he's mad about something, <laughs> you know, so that's just practice. That's just practice. And getting managers together in a group. I mean, the other thing that I found super effective is that people learn from each other. Because yeah, when I coach somebody, that. yeah, that's super helpful because somebody else can go, you know, that sounds more like something I would say. And and the other thing I always tell people is no one ever, you know, uh, I should have waited a year before I said goodbye to that person, said no one ever. I should have given it another year. No. But, but on the other hand, you know, I have also, I'm sure as you have seen, somebody in the wrong job with the wrong boss and I've switched it up and they've done incredibly well somewhere else. Absolutely. hundred percent. All right. So last question, this will be a quick one. Patty, how do people get a hold of you? You can go to my website, pattymccord.com and that's the best way to reach me. All right. That's easy. So Patty, thank you so much for joining us. Your work's had an enormous impact on the way we built our culture at Acceleration Partners. And I'm grateful to you and your vision uh, and for a lot of that virtual mentorship over the years. Now let's keep it up, okay? All right, to our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast. Until next time, keep elevating. Keep elevating.
This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.